Hey everybody, I'm Tim Whitaker, along with Rob McMichael and Jordan Renault. This is our podcast, Coffee, Theology, and Jesus. Our purpose for this podcast is to discuss this messy, difficult, and amazing thing we call the Christian faith. As Christians, we are encouraged and challenged constantly to see what the Bible teaches us about who Jesus was and how he lived and how we can better represent his message every day. Join us each episode as we explore how this relationship with Jesus affects everything from politics and religion to relationships and theology. Now that you know a little more about us, let's get into this week's episode. Welcome, everyone, to the Coffee, Theology, and Jesus podcast. I am your host, Tim Whitaker. Listen, guys, on this episode of the show, I had the chance to sit down with Chris Hall, and I got to say, this might be my favorite interview I've ever had the chance of doing. Chris is an amazing person. He um, is a professor at Scranton University where he teaches theology. He co-wrote the book, Jesus for President. And I got to say, I really enjoyed um, the way he described uh, the topics that we talk about, his um, just his perspective on things. And it was so challenging for me as a believer to really expand um what God really cares about. So we talked about environmentalism. We talked about the church, about the evangelical church. Chris's story, and he'll share more of this in the interview, is that he was raised lightly Catholic, um, joined Willow Creek as a as a teenager, and then eventually uh, went over to Catholicism for a bit where he worked in Camden. So his story is awesome, but his perspective on things are great. So check out this interview. Also, before I let you guys go, quick heads up, we now officially have an Instagram um, account. It's at CTJ Podcast. Give us a follow. And if you like this episode, please share it and give us a rating. Talk to you guys soon. All right, Chris, thank you so much for joining me on this interview on the Coffee Theology and Jesus podcast. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. Absolutely. So I don't know if, if uh, many of our listeners remember, I uh, had the chance to interview Shane Claiborne a few years ago and his book over a decade now, uh, Irresistible Revolution, it really, it changed my life as far as how I view the Christian faith. And uh, so interviewing him was great. And then he gave me your book that you wrote. Um, from Willow Creek to Sacred Heart, and I finished reading it a couple months ago, and it was it was it was awesome. So, why don't you give our listeners some of your background, maybe a big picture overview of your faith journey, and kind of where you land now? Sure. Yeah, I um, I met Shane when I was about fourteen or fifteen years old, and he was interning over at Willow Creek Church after having just come back from meeting Mother Teresa over in Calcutta. So he himself was working through just this immense contrast of seeing desperate poverty and then our comfort in the United States. Um, and I met him at just, I think, the right time in a very dark sense of the word right, because I had a friend commit suicide um, in a sort of dark imitation of Kurt Cobain's suicide uh, a few months after mm -hmm. him. And um, I had been raised very lightly, uh, modestly Catholic for several years, and my family was drawn over to Willow Creek um, for all of the you know, famous reasons of it's more smooth, they've taken out all the weird rituals and all the images, and, and they, they're just shooting straight, and, and they're going to just have us you know, stick to the major things like following Jesus and so forth. And Shane also was sort of like, yeah, let's hear what Willow has to say. And that's why he found so much energy and excitement and he wanted to go interact with their 
in this sort of sweet and sour, hot and cold combination with mm. Calcutta. So he and I met there and very quickly I became more connected with some of what was his like spiritual practices, which was to go down to the streets of Chicago and in a way throw yourself outside of your comfort zone. Like mm. have these really weird conversations where you're like, I just, I'm walking around on the streets and I notice you're homeless and I, <laughs> like, what's your story? And of course those are awkward because what you're doing is you're breaking outside of or recognizing that your world is a bubble mm -hmm. and you're trying to break that bubble. And for me, if, if there's any small silver lining in that um, friend's suicide, it was just that it broke my heart and made me start to sort of pour outward. And so I was going to be a pilot initially. And um, I started just throwing everything into confusion saying, I just want to understand the world more, understand why there's so much poverty, so much suffering. And I want to understand, understand this powerful gospel mm -hmm. that both Willow and Shane is talking about. So that led me to continue following those words in a way, away from Willow Creek towards um, feeling that part of my journey needed to include uh, what Mother Teresa said, find your own Calcutta. Mm. And, you know, drop the hype, even drop the hype about poverty. Like, don't make it about exoticism of like going to India or like going to Africa so that you can mm -hmm. feel mm -hmm. like you're part of some sort of sexy movement of exotic courageous work, but simply recognize the Calcuttas around you everywhere. Mm. So for me, as I, you know, was studying theology and sociology, my nearest Calcutta turned out to be Camden, New Jersey, which was one of the most poor and violent cities in the United States. Um, and, you know, I ran into a Catholic priest who was talking about environmental racism you know, this idea that the not in my backyard privilege of the surrounding suburb, suburbs mm. all ended up creating this, putting it in the backyard of people of color and people who are dispossessed. And, you know, it's a city in which there's prostitutes and drug dealers on the streets. And, and I felt like, man, this place seems like hell. And like, I feel magnetized there. So I actually moved in to partner with a Catholic church there, not because I was drawn to Catholicism, but because part of going to my Calcutta involved letting go of the, what felt like the, the hype and the sexiness of the Willow Creek vibe, not to attack them, but to say there is something about the hype there that they're, they know is sort of awkward. Like I used to be a, a, a worship leader kind of joining in the stuff that you're familiar with too. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got the in-ear monitors and you're rocking out to drums yep. and guitar and whatever. And before those meetings, when they were preparing these very well-tuned rituals of sincerity, they would say, everybody, remember, it's not about numbers. It's about, you know, the spirit or about love or whatever. But the reason they would have to remind us that is because they had created a beast 
much in the way the Catholic Church also created its own beast. They created a beast that they had to keep serving. They had, it had to be about numbers to keep those doors open. So in a way, part of me for faith in going into Camden, my own Calcutta, was also no longer being a part of what felt like the hip or the newest or the cutting edge or where things are headed. In fact, faith involves like shedding yourself of those attachments to power, those attachments to hype. That is a part of the spirit of Christ crucified. So I lived there for 10 years. I did tons there. I could talk more about that if you want. Um, you know, mixture of teaching at an inner city public, uh, inner city um, school from Sacred Heart, it's a parochial school, worked as an electrician, worked as a carpenter, learned pottery, um, wrote a book, Jesus for President. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so anyway, that's kind of, that's the five-ish minute overview of, of my life story. And, you know, it ended up meet with me getting my doctorate and now being a professor. I mean, I, um, obviously there's so much that you said that I know we can spend hours on. I resonate heavily with the idea of, um, I, in fact, as I talk to you, I'm wearing my in-ear monitors as a monitor. Um, so I, I love that. And I, I do as a musician, as an artist, I love, um, what you said, you call it like the hype. I, I love that as, as that part of me loves that, you know, I love quality. I put a lot of years into my craft and it's great to be able to express that in like a top-notch place that's culturally like on the cutting edge. Um, but this idea you keep on hitting on about, you know, kind of shedding that as part of your faith journey. Can you elaborate a little bit more? Because I know a lot of our audience deals in the modern church movement. And I think we wrestle with this. I almost feel that, like personally I'm divided. Part of me is one day, this is great. You know, the church has to move forward. That's just how life is. The other days I'm like, this is a sham. It's a show. I hate it all. <laughs> you know, get me into a tent. What do you do with that? Yeah, there is no easy um, resolution to that for me. Um, it, you know, back when I was at Willow, it would involve certain amounts of needing to um, in a way deface the hype by like I would I would not wear shoes sometimes when we were doing worship leading. Now, in a way that was for my own personal um, kind of interior dialogue of, of, you know, a little bit of playing with the question of, of worshiping a holy God, but it was also something about, like I would sometimes um, intentionally not sort of lean into trying to wear my best or look pretty or look good. And see, the danger in some of this is that even as you try to negate the, the decorum, it becomes its own new decorum. Mm -hmm. So like that's, you know, that's where Jesus says, you know, you try to look like you're struggling when you're fasting and, and then you're undoing it. You, so the point about clothes, as Jesus said, is that life is more important than it. But this is the challenge in defacing um, art. This is the iconoclasts problem, which is, you know, Willow Creek is iconoclastic. Evangelicals are iconoclastic. What I mean by that is they see religious decorum and they want to destroy it. And that is a passion that is 
partly true. It is a passion that stems from the second commandment. It's a passion that stems from the unrepresentability of God. Mm. It is a passion that stems from a dangerous memory of the corruption and the violence of the church and its cover-up scandals and its simony and its all of the reasons that were valid for the upheaval of the 1500s, all of those are valid feelings, but it is possible to respond to them in the wrong way. And it is possible to say, for example, as Willow does, the Catholics are Pharisaic uh, ritualistic people. We will escape from ritual and be sincere. We will be sincere, they will be ritualistic. When you create this black and white world, you don't realize that in your destroying the icon, you are just constructing a new idol. In your destroying the ritualism, you now have a ritual of sincerity. You now have a faux, um, well, maybe it's not even faux, it could be half sincere, but you know, the squinting of the eyes and holding up of the hands where it's half sincere, but it's also, it's, it has not escaped. It has not left the realm of encultured coercion and, you know, yeah, just cultural um, osmosis. No one escapes from that. Mm-hmm. So for me, the inescapability of that needs to go deep for all of us. Like even to call yourself non-denominational is one of the faux versions of escape that you can look at 2000 years of history and say, okay, well, there was, you know, thousands of arguments and I, however, will rise above them all. I will be the neutral person. I will be the one who is peaceful and all of them are conflictual. But that is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 23, which is everybody always scapegoats their ancestors. They always say, I am clean and they were dirty. So this needs to be a deep spiritual challenge to the self to say, okay, engage in your negations. Um, Negate, let's say, the insincerity of certain Pharisaism. Negate the ritualism negate even the fake ritualism or the anti-ritualism of evangelical worship but even as you negate them recognize that there is no escape into a neutral position yes um it's yeah that was so well said i have found that in my own personal life where i came to the realization of oh um we might like to think that we have impromptu services but we never do it's it is the same format and that has become a ritual in itself which doesn't mean it's a bad thing but if we're not honest about it it creates this like this uh this unintentional deception where you realize one day like oh we're just really recreating our own rituals in a modern context again not a bad thing but let's call it what it is it reminds me a little bit of um, it's my understanding that a lot of like, you know, the um, Roman Catholic churches and a lot of that Gothic architecture was designed to give someone the feeling 
of like a presence in the room with the stained glass and the way that things were set up, the big cathedral ceilings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we, it's so easy to look back and say, oh man, like manipulation. But then we create these big worship events, again, that I love. And we had the lights and we had the haze and we had the power and the drums are super dynamic. And we call that the Holy Spirit. Obviously, I think it's safe to say that the Lord has worked and will continue to work through many different church expressions. But let's be honest about, about what we're doing. We're really just taking the artistry and modernizing it and just kind of taking the, the we're kind of grabbing the torch from our ancestors without even knowing it and saying, yeah, we're going to reinvent the same idea in our culture. So I find that, that, that the honesty is one, maybe one of the big parts that we have to come to reckon with for us to be able to move forward and admit that it is what it is. Definitely. Yeah. And that's a huge part of it. And when we just sort of do this sort of cherry picking from the past or just, you know, pretending like we stand above those arguments of the past, we actually lose a ton. Like when we try to, let's just say, um, recreate a Eucharistic ritual um, and, and say, what we're going to do is we're going to jump over 2000 years of discussion and just jump back, you know, right into the book of Matthew or whatever. Um, you actually don't even know what you're doing. You, like, you don't even, you don't have the, um, the, the deep juices of this whole conversation that we have so much to learn. And there is a great arrogance to presume that we are not interpreters, but we are just doing it. Maybe another word on this very briefly is a maxim that I heard from Doug Paget about 20 years ago, at least. Um, and he, I think, oriented my mind in, in this way in which we denounce the Pharisees and so forth, is he said, the problem with the Pharisees is not that they believed in works or did their works and thought that that was salvation. He said, no, the problem with the Pharisees is that they said they worked but they didn't, okay? That is an immense difference. The problem is, is not, you know, ritualism or something like that. The problem is this pretension to doing God's will and not doing it. That's the problem. Wow. So, you know, that, of course, it's simply another way of saying that faith without works is dead. And, um, yeah. Yeah, um... I'm a big fan of the Bible Project, Dr. Tim Mackey. I'm a, I'm a diehard. Um, in fact, I make a point to mention him every single show, so now it's mentioned. But um, he, I listen to his podcast, and they their podcasts for me are just, I mean, it's just a gold mine of knowledge and insight. And they really uh, have taught me that to assume, like you said, that, oh, I need to skip over 2,000 years of church tradition and history and think that my uh, postmodern, you know, Western view of the Bible is an accurate reading is really dangerous. Um, you know, another book I'm thinking about is uh, the book by Dr. Randy Richards, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes. Uh, he wrote a great book on just how it's, we have to just be aware of our biases that we bring to the text and we can read things and totally miss what's really happening. So um, I, I do want to keep moving on because I feel like we can park there forever. I want to get into this idea of uh, Christian environmentalism. I know that you spent some time um, studying in, uh, was it Belize, I believe? Is that correct? Yes. yes. Um, and I, I do believe that um, one of the things that we're missing as an evangelical culture is this focus and emphasis 
on the environment. I mean, it's very clear in, in, the, in the first two chapters of the Bible that we are called to steward and to take care of the planet. And I can't tell if it's either ignorance or just pure denial for why Christians in America don't feel like the need to make that a big, you know, kind of like planting the flag on this issue. Um, can you speak to your experience um, with this biblically and also what you see in culture and what you're doing about it? Gosh, there's a lot there. Um, well, part of my experience in Belize was that I lived in the rainforest for about four or five months and um, came to recognize that no part of our planet is untouched by the massive onslaught of industrial capitalism and fossil fuel uh, consumption, that literally all parts of the planet now are affected. And um, even what I thought was like, you know, the jungle was actually had been strip um, cut, you know, many years prior and had just been growing back. And part of my story was to start understanding that the um, very platonized or heaven oriented version of Christianity was, of course, mistaken. Now, this, this is part of a dialogue that I think is probably maybe catching traction in evangelical circles, which is mm -hmm. the emphasis on the body and the emphasis on the resurrection of the body being the centerpiece of, you know, scripture orientation, which, you know, there's like small points where you could think otherwise, like in Thessalonians, where we have them go out to meet Christ coming on the clouds and to live with him forever. Whereas actually the verbiage there is using the verbs that you would use for when Caesar comes to a town and everybody goes out to meet him and you bring him into the town. Huh. In other words, it's, it's not an image of going off to heaven like per the clouds. It's, a, it's an image of you go out to meet the royalty and bring them in. Wow. And similarly, in um, I think it was in Second Peter, we have the earth and everything in it will be fill in the blank. You know, I studied under Stephen Bomer-Prediger, who took uh, an examination of 20 different versions of the, the Greek translation there. Uh, and he said the most accurate is the Dutch one, which is the refiner's fire that is prepared for the earth, so to speak, is, uh, can be described as the earth and everything in it will be found. Yes. The earth and everything in it will be disclosed or unearthed in the sense that this fire that we speak of is not a hateful, destructive fire that, you know, in a sense uh, means dump the earth, go off into the clouds, dump the earth, go off onto this platonic uh, realm of spiritual forms. No, but everything in the scriptures is bodily oriented. Now, a lot can be said on that. And in a way it is to get our reason more in touch with the biblical view but I actually think that part of the issue here is not about our reason or even our understanding of scripture. It is not that. That would be like mistaken, mistaking that racism in our country is about bigotry and prejudice. The best understanders of that problem understand that mass exploitation and materialism and greed warranted and called for a justification. And that's where racism comes from. So what I mean by that is take this by analogy to our exploitation of the planet. Mammon, the love of money, 
and materialism are the root. It is not a faulty reading of scripture that is the root. Mm. The, the faulty thing is our own greed that has warped us into a certain mode of desire that we need certain things. And now we are at a point where it's not just even greedy impulses and materialism, but it, industrial capitalism has exploded onto a planet of 7.x billion people such that you don't even now need to be overconsumptive to be destroying the planet. We are now at a point where our adding up of effects, our cumulative effects of our ways of life are making life on our planet unsustainable. Mm. What I mean by that is you don't have to be the kind of person who just wants to pour radioactive sludge on the ground mm. to be part of destroying the planet. You don't have to be a Dr. Evil who just wants to strangle baby owls. Right. You know, that's not the dilemma anymore. Mm. It's not even an issue of misreading the scripture anymore. It's we are now part of this algal bloom of unreflective uh, growth, unattentive growth that is irresponsible. And I use that word responsible with a strong conservative sense, which is all good conservative thought puts as one of its foundations, we need to be responsible people. And of course, that's a scriptural concept. But my point is scripture and our manipulation of it is downstream from all of these more powerful forces. And so part of my moving into Camden and trying to be a part of it, this tiny group that shared our cars or like shared our grocery uh, you know, shopping, that tried to uh, shop more local or make our own products or like make my own reclaimed wood projects or make my own ceramics or, um, you know, we had great people in our community who would try to um, do local farming. Mm -hmm. Those are all small ways of trying to be responsible. But boy, this is hard. I bring these up not as an issue of like, I have a solution and everybody is wrong. The point is, we've all been born into a very sinful situation. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a sinful structure. And even our habits and our intuitions are sinful. And we need to be responsible to answer that because if we don't get on this, we are in trouble. Um, so I don't know, that's just one brief way of responding to that. So right now there's a good chance that a lot of um, um, our listeners' ears are just smoking with like the idea of, oh, this sounds liberal. This sounds like you're just a far left, whatever kind of person. And that's just a shame and shows how far our political rhetoric has come into the church. But that's probably the truth. Because when you, whenever you start talking about certain issues, the environment, or start saying certain words, like how, um, you know, maybe capitalism is painted in a negative light in this particular example, people start having just for whatever reason, red flags going up. What do you say to those people? Like, how do we, how do we break through that very big wall of this is not a political statement. This is all over the Bible. How do we re reorient ourselves from um, filtering the Bible through the political lens instead of um, filtering the political lens through the Bible? Yeah. I mean, in a way I was, 
tipping my hat a little bit to that direction in, in the sense of, I do think the scriptures say damning things to our economy and our way of life. The scriptures would damn a, what Wendell Berry calls an economy that is firmly founded on the seven deadly sins and the breaking of all 10 of the 10 commandments. We are damned by a scriptures that endow us with responsibility to till and keep this planet and say as well that this earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Um, and it's, you only get to use it. You don't own it. Um, all of those scriptures point towards a way by which, if you can ever speak of dominion, it can only be spoken through the lens of Christ's dominion, which of course is a dominion of service. I think the, the challenge is that, again, I don't think people's well, let me just say, people to more properly understand how the scriptures command our care for the earth, I'm not sure that is enough to untie the knots into which people have been woven. Mm. We are in a deeper kind of knot in, in which simply clarifying that the scriptures uh, charge us with responsibility, lest the Lord slay us. <laughs> you know, um, it's, we aren't listening to those calls. If we, if we did listen to the scripture, we would all be repenting in sackcloth and ashes for how the scripture, let's say in Deuteronomy, tells us that God will slay you with the sword if you do not respond to the foreigner, the alien, and the immigrant. Mm -hmm. How, how, how Christians can hold to a scripture that says that so powerfully and, and be silent in the last four years of utterly shutting down refugees and migrants, to me means we're not interested in the scripture. Mm. We're not interested in what the scriptures tell us. My point is that there are things that are binding us, which are prior to our reason, that are prior to our um, listening to the scripture. And those things that are binding us are what Christ called mammon, are what Christ called like literally a sort of personified force of the love of money. And so our, our desires have been shaped such that we will always read scripture or reason in tension or even subject to these mammon-esque forces. So um, hmm. I think the scriptures are, let's say, maybe a crowbar to help un, uh, to you know, decouple us from being so woven into our current mode of economy. But I think we're afraid to, I guess, maybe do what the prophets were doing which is we have to be able to condemn ourselves, not just condemn others, but to say, I am a part of the problem. Yeah. I, am, I am a sinner. It's not them, it's me. Like, I am a part of this problem here. And I feel like there's, like, humans just have a, a nervous tick where they won't do that. They have to say, 
uh, no, it's, it's those other people. It's, you know, but no, we are a part of a problem. And sure, you can even hold on to the sense that you have good intentions, that you are kind, you're generous, you love your neighbor. But we are mixed into a much larger web of delusion. And that web of delusion, one of the ways out of that, maybe to call upon the Wesleyan quadrilateral, is the Wesleyan quadrilateral refers to how the truth comes to us in many forms, some of which is scripture, some of which is, you know, authorities speaking truth to us, some of which is our own experience, and so forth. One of the things that Christians have to get in touch with is the truth that can speak to us from science. Um, you know, Mammon has sort of, in a way, um, found a mute button for science, such that, you know, just a generation ago, there was an actual, like, you know, trial held by Mammon and the um, cigarette companies as to whether the science of this is that it creates cancer. Well, similarly today, it's like we have 97% of scientists telling us everything points to we need to take action. This is human-induced global climate change. Um, we have to take responsibility for that and act now. And for mammon reasons, Christians, I think, are not hearing that source of truth. Um, yeah, so we don't just need to listen to scripture. We also need to learn from science. Yeah, um, so I grew up uh, homeschooled. I grew up in a conservative uh, environment, and my parents are great people. So if they're listening, I love you, mom and dad. It's not a critique on them, but that's just, this is the world I grew up in. And um, it is, it's been challenging even for me to kind of have to, over the years, realize that, well, science is not the enemy of faith. Um, we actually, uh, Dr. Um, John Walton, um, another great person who has some great perspectives on this stuff. And um, it, I have found that, that, that the more I listen to people like that, the more I realize like, oh, these things are not at odds at all. But for some reason in our, especially in the evangelical and the church culture, they seem to be uh, conveniently. I think that when it comes to things like, uh, like abortion and pro-life, then the science is really clear and, and, you know, and that's great. And obviously we should, we should acknowledge those things. That's a good thing. But when it comes to other things like the environment or even how we kind of got here, oh, it's not clear. Uh, it's, it's a lie. We have to, then we, then we, um, go back to the scriptures and we read Genesis one super literally, cause that's the only way to read it. And we just become, like you said, there's so many knots to untangle and I feel like some days I'm looking at a spaghetti bowl and I'm like, where these, they're all intersecting everywhere, all these trains of thoughts and lines. So um, can you speak a little bit? I think in my mind, what I'm wondering is where as, as people who are committed Christians and we want to do our best to understand the scripture and we're trying to undo our biases, like how do we start that process for like the layman? You know, like let's say there's someone listening who's like, wow, I've never thought about any of this stuff before ever. This is great, but like it's, it can be overwhelming. Where do I start in this journey? Great. I think the, the best place to start is to recognize that we all have a log in our own eye and we have to begin with ourselves. Now, this is not to say we 
shouldn't talk about our communities or our institutions or our larger structures that we're a part of. I'm just saying psychologically, the most healthy place to begin is to recognize that your own life is woven into what the scriptures call the era of the fall or the era of sin. Mm -hmm. and, and it is in you. And so what I mean by that is, you know, Chesterton, who's one of the authors I love from the early 20th century, and Time Magazine reached out to like a hundred or so authors and they said, what's wrong with the world? Tell us. And they asked Chesterton and, you know, he is known for being very, you know, loquacious and verbose and has a lot of things to say about everything. And he wrote his, the shortest letter of his whole life and he responded, dear sirs, I am yours GK. Okay, so what is wrong with the world? I am. Now, what that is saying is not, you know, don't talk about big issues, don't talk about structures, don't talk about systems. It's saying that if, if you are to recognize the, um, the military industrial complex, let's say, the way by which we make money by, you know, having an enormously ballooned military, we have to recognize that our lives are woven into that, that we pay taxes into that system. We have desires structured by um, our society such that we want certain things or believe that certain things will bring us freedom or truth or goodness. Um, or more particularly on the environment, you know, ask yourself, what is your own carbon footprint? Um, what could you reasonably expect the world to live by? put differently some have recognized that if the world were to live the way your average american lives we would need three planets huh. we only have one news flash you know we right. only have one and so we have to take responsibility for that and and yes turn to the bigger questions because those do need to be structured at a much larger level and that's something we can talk about if you want but to me, psychologically, the way to not have a posture of, of judgment, a posture of hateful resentment of others is to actually recognize that you need to reverse that scapegoating and say what needs to be ejected is not them over there, but the log in your own eye mm. to recognize how you're a part of the problem. Um, and I suppose maybe to get back to the first thing I had said is I think people's hearts being broken is one of the avenues to this is that we might see so many problems in the world and just treat them as like sort of rational issues to be debated or, you know, to try to problem solve, but to really feel and enter in the stories of other people you know, like that for me was a part of my story in Belize of coming to live um, in a jungle, which, you know, down the street from me, I spent just a week living in a hut with somebody who had basically paper walls and a dirt floor and children that, so far as I could tell, seemed to like prime candidates for like dying of diarrhea. You know, like when you meet people and make real the, the poverty and the struggle, then it breaks your heart. And so it's, I'm not, I think we should recognize it's not that people don't care, 
about the poor or don't care about the earth. It's just we are so out of touch with it. We don't know the poor. We don't see how our life is impacting the world. We don't see, like, let's say, you know, a few months ago, a, a very heart-wrenching um, coverage of millions of people um, that are being displaced by climate insecurity or their country is basically in an advanced form of, you know, death where, like, it's, you know, their governmental structures are falling apart because their economy has been falling apart because they can't grow food the way they used to be able to. And so that a lot of that sort of struggles are happening in Central America. And that's some of what's behind the pressure of a refugee influx throughout Central America is asking, where does this come from? Um, and how am I a part of it? Or just even in the most simple sense, can you let your heart be broken by asylum seekers, by people who are refugees, instead of just seeing them as a threat? You know, somebody put it very well, if your heart is not broken by refugees, you might have a spiritual heart problem that you need to look into. And so, the, you know, the challenge I guess I'm presenting here is to start making the connections of affection, make the connections of care and concern. Um, yeah, and we in the privileged parts of the planet are not familiarized with how there, there are over 78 million people displaced from their countries, you know, around the world, mm. partly through, you know, climate, partly through conflict, et cetera. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it seems as you're talking, I'm thinking that one of the problems I see a lot in our, in our current American, just American uh, culture is that there is this polarization and there is this otherness of the political spectrum of Democrats are the other and Republicans are the other and there's always blame. And, you know, whenever someone says something, someone shows a video of the other side doing the same thing previously. And there's this, this back. I mean, it's, it's tired. It, 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 it makes me exhausted. Um, but I, it seems like, you know, what you're saying, this idea of if we take personal responsibility for ourselves and admit that actually we're part of the problem, that's a great way of lowering the temperature instead of trying to demonize the other that's out there that becomes in our mind, this nebulous image of just this, this thing. Um, and I think that that's an important step to healing into hopefully trying to address some of the major problems. I mean, personally, when you're talking about people who are displaced, it's like, yeah, that's a great example. I don't think about that at all. Um, I just don't. And I have to repent of that and, and make that a, a, a major issue in my life. It is fascinating because I feel like um, when we meet people who are outside of our comfort zones, they really change us. I mean, that's, that's what has broken, what, what's changed my perspective on on racial issues or on the LGBTQ issue is knowing people like and having them over for coffee or for breakfast and just listening to them. And it's hard to deny them to their face when they're telling you their humanity. It's, you know, it, it's a different kind of conversation. One last thing I want to ask you before we get ready to wrap up, and this is kind of a big one. So um, do with it what you will is one of the problems that I am seeing uh, big time in our, in our um, Christian culture in America is this idea of Christian nationalism. Somehow, some way, they've really merged this God and country, this, this um, conservative Republican ethos, I'll say, uh, as kind of one of the same. And really, the, the, the data doesn't lie. Uh, it's a pretty good chance that if you're at, at, at an evangelical church, 
75 to 80 percent of those people are going to lean you know republican conservative in the political spectrum and they they don't seem to see like the problems of like gun ownership in the bible to them it's one and the same or freedom in the bible i mean how do we my question to you is this how do we have a real conversation about that without people thinking that that i'm like a liberal maniac who's just trying to push them to socialism because that is not the point at all but it seems like once you start picking apart at some of these problems people think oh well you're just you're the opposite extreme how do we have a real conversation around this to start undoing some of these knots well for some i think actually scripture is probably one place for them to begin um i think Christians need to become acquainted with the teachings of Jesus Christ, you know, and most are actually very unfamiliar with um, his teachings in the sense that they are meant to change your life. Now, one of the examples I would like to give on this is The problem is, is not with whether people are sincere in their faith, but whether their sincerity is actually controlled by something deeper, by something before that. And that's what, you know, a Nazi era theologian um, who was critiquing the Nazis was um, Eric Peterson. And he referred to this problem as a problem of prior political decision. What he meant by that is people can say that they have faith, but they have made a decision prior to that faith, which is actually the deeper commitment. And the melding together of God and country is not at all new. That in a way is the most native form of human existence, to see God on our side, to see God as kind of woven through together with the pride of our group. And Jewish people basically started to break that because they seem to have been the first people in civilizations um, or in human history to narrate their history as one of having sinned against their God. No other people, so far as I know, so strongly narrated their own collective history as one of having defied God, as one of having destroyed their relationship with God because it's our fault. That is so different from the main mode of nationalism, which is we are the best, what we were founded on is the best, and we're always doing the best. You know, like in its, in, its, in its delusional format, that's how it goes, because the prior political decision there is always to feel like we are clean and they are dirty. And Jewish people basically started to like flip that script. Now, what I wanted to, you know, get to on this is that One of the ways that prior political decision operates in the United States is very well expressed in a um, conversation that was being held with uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., the president of Liberty University, in being asked about, okay, so how are you, you know, dealing with our political landscape? We, we know that, um, you know, many of Trump's policies have been actually very anti-concern uh, for refugee or asylum seeker, you know, very much in violation of the scriptural mandate to, for us to be people that are welcoming uh, to um, the alien. 
And even if somebody wants to turn that libertarian and say, well, that's just for individuals to do. Well, you can also say that the individuals who I know who care for refugees and are part of programs that try to care for them, they literally cannot do that anymore because they are not allowed to be received on an individualistic level. Anyway, so they said, so we've got that, we've got the porn star stuff, we've got, you know, all of the other kind of long list of things. And his response was very profound in revealing his prior political decision. He said, I don't let the teachings of Jesus affect my politics. Okay. That in a way is a, a centerpiece for meditation in our Christian setting here, which is, I'm going to use a lot of syllables here. So sorry. We have an account of somebody who has extremely politicized Christianity for a generation who has been saying, let's make America Christian again, you know, like all of that sort of stuff. We need to get our 10 commandments back in schools. Like, right. you know, we're taking Christ out of Christmas, you know, yes. uh, et cetera, et cetera. We need to get God back up in the public sphere. So heavy politicization of God. Yet that is happening at the same time through extremely depoliticizing God. So that's maybe a, something of a verbal paradox, but it's, it's just trying to describe that the total politicization of God has resulted in the total depoliticization of God. And what we have to get back in touch with is a Christ who was extremely political, even if he wasn't always legislative who was extremely partisan, even if he loved all people. Hmm. And what I mean by that is his partisanism was deep love. He was a person who, in the words of Herbert McCabe, who knew that if you don't love, you are dead. And if you do love, they'll kill you. Hmm. You have to live in that tension of of recognizing that the, the type of love Christ calls us to is a challenging, courageous love that told his, you know, told his followers, you have to put away your sword. You have to pick up your cross. You have to be the kind of person whose hand per the Torah is always open in love to the neighbor around you, who, is, who sees the alien, the stranger, the, the naked, the hungry, the homeless, the imprisoned, who sees them as a sacrament of God's presence, who sees them as the surprise of God where you thought God wasn't. That is what Christ is calling us to do, you know, especially in the parable of the sheep and the goats. This is, this is Christ challenging us to be more comfortable with discomfort, so to speak, to get out of our comfort zone, recognizing that our comfort has made us spiritual lepers as Shane often talks about you know we are we've grown to be spiritual lepers who cannot feel the pain of the world and are insulated and in that insulation we're on the road to death we're on the road to death because we can't feel uh, the pain of those around us um, and I feel like there are many ways in which you know our grasping for 
our guns grasping for Christian cultural power. These are ways in which maybe St. Augustine would call them um, corrupted versions of imitating God. You know, they're corrupt imitations of God because we see God as secure. And so we pretend to imitate that by carrying a gun. We see, you know, God is safe. And so we try to secure it through that type of safety. Um, we see God as loving. And so we, we fatigue at extending love farther than anybody who's nearly around us. And our love can't really you know, manage the grand love of God, which extends beyond all borders. Um, you know, instead of this sort of uh, corrupt imitation of God, we need to listen to Christ inviting us to, as he said, imitate the Father who imitates no one else. He's not in rivalry. He loves all unconditionally. He sends rain and sunshine on the good and the evil. And if you live like that in this world, you need to be prepared to be hated. You need to be prepared to be killed because this will challenge a world that does not operate out of love uh, of that kind. Mm. Our world operates through what Augustine said, a love of self that is so great that it forgets God. The kingdom of God is about a love for God so great that you even forget yourself. Mm. It's the reverse of that. Mm. So, to me, our Christian nationalism is not, um, you know, it's not something totally alien to the human species because that type of God on our side approach to things is precisely the same spirit that has animated us since Cain killed Abel. It's the spirit of protective, um, you know, grasping for sustaining yourself and not interest in the other, not concern for the other. Um, it's, it's, we live still under the mark of Cain and we need to live under the mark basically of the second Abel of Christ, you know, mm. who's the better word uh, from the ground with his blood, you know, in the ground of our earth is speaking a word of forgiveness, transformation, resurrection, love, and not, you know, the first Abel who, if his blood, I guess, was speaking from the ground, maybe just kill that guy. <laughs> like, you know, uh, that's, that's why the mark of Cain is there. But we need to be people who can live without the mark of Cain, who can learn to live beyond law, you know, a righteousness outside the law, a righteousness outside of that which um, lives through tit for tat, but can instead love those with whom we disagree with, um, try to transform uh, the violence of our world. So that is very hard to do. And I don't think there is any neutral way to do it. I think it will be a way of incarnating love that will at times take sides, but not in hatred for anyone. Mm. But it has to take sides because God is truth. You know, yeah. wherever there's truth, you have to work for it. So anyway, that's my wow. short answer. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate you sharing that. Honestly, I feel like uh, everything you've said this whole interview, I'm. Uh, it's just like, wow, so much to think about. And I know that in a lot of ways, a lot of this is very just like level one <laughs> of what is really beneath what you're saying. And um, I hope that for our listeners, it really challenges them to realize that there are other ways to view what's happening that actually might be more faithful to the Christian tradition 
um, and not to be sucked into, I would say maybe the evangelical idea of like, oh, we are doing it right. They've all done it wrong. You know, we have the truth. The Catholics don't. I feel like there's a little naive sometimes. So um, I appreciate your time, Chris. I thank you for coming on the show and um, hopefully we'll talk to you again because this was really great. I love it. It was great. I hope so. We do again. Bye. Thank you. Well, there it is, guys. There's the interview with Chris. Personally, one of my my favorite interviews, but, you know, Rob Jordan, would love to hear your thoughts on this one. I thought it was really good. Um, yeah, I think he touched on some really awesome points about, especially uh, the one that stuck out to me a lot was how he talked about the deeper issues that are like behind or, or like underneath or I forget the term he used almost like before, like this is what's happening in your, yes. your mind or your heart, like before this other thing is coming out. Um, I really like that way of describing it almost. And I think it's so true. Like so many of these things that we witness in evangelical culture or just our American culture, there's so much like deeper stuff that, this is all coming out of like it's not just like he was saying it's not just a misunderstanding or rejection of scripture it's a love of you know money <laughs> it's yes greed. almost like things the, like he, that he kind of described yeah. it like there's a hierarchy of, right. of of beliefs and the bible is not the top one like there's this other there's uh, this other belief first and then the bible comes in because he mentioned that which is think, part of the problem, I think. <laughs> well, totally, because he talks. He talked about how um, there are, you know, he, he, I, I think I asked him, you know, how do we fix this with like, uh, like through the Bible, pretty much. He's like, well, I don't really, I don't really think that it's like a biblical issue in the sense of correcting your doctrine. That can be right. part of it, and for some people, it is. But there's also yeah. this whole other idea of that there are beliefs already embedded in people that then the Bible gets filtered through. And that's yeah. honestly, Robin Jordan, what we've been trying to do, you know, we, we've been trying to deconstruct that now for a couple of years of, and no one will do it perfectly, but the idea is how do we get our lens to match the biblical author's lens and not bring my American lens onto the Bible and read it through <laughs> that lens, right? And that's right. really hard to well, do. It's almost... It's almost too like when you're talking about, it's almost like when people talk about applying the scripture to your lives. And I don't think that's the wrong way to look at it necessarily because, you know, how we've said before and that I think Dr. Walton was the one that kind of used this term that the scripture was written for us, but not to us. And I think it is important to remember while we're, you know, exploring all the context and who it was written to, that it was written for us. You know, we do... It, it is important for our lives and it's important that we apply things from scripture to our lives. I think the point that he was getting at in, in your interview um, that I think is really good is that often we're like looking for the wrong part to apply to our lives. Like if like, for example, you guys talked about like environmental issues and stuff like that. Um, and you know, you can look at those scriptures that address that specifically but those aren't necessarily going to be the ones that are helpful in addressing the problem that you're having. If the root problem that you're having is not that you hate the environment, <laughs> you know, it's, that's probably not what it is. You know, there's, there's a deeper issue, whether it's uh, greed or apathy or whatever that's underlying that 
I think scripture is still really important in addressing those things, but it's like, you gotta, you gotta find what the actual root issue is in somebody's heart. And to that point, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it was a deliberate thing that happened. Um, it was just somebody was doing some eisegesis, right? So they're taking what they think of the world and they filter the text through it. So they apply their theology to the text instead of exegesis, taking out what the text is saying. And then that over time slowly incorporated and slowly slid further and further and further until you're to a point where no one foresaw it going, but that's where we're at today. Um, and it depends on the circles that you're in. It depends on what church you go to or walk into, that how, where they are on that spectrum of what we're talking about. And, you know, Tim, I know you like to talk about Scott McKnight and his um, theology that you need to interpret the Bible in your culture or in your day, in your way. And But the first step in that is to take a step back and say, well, what what was the day and way that the scripture was written right and it the we we all agree that the bible is a cross-cultural cross-millennia book but to uh, um accurately appropriate that yes. cult or that message to our culture we have to understand this is the culture that it was written in and why it was written like that why did the Apostle Paul write certain things? Why did Jesus teach his disciples certain things? Why were some things in the scriptures left unsaid? We have to understand the culture to understand those things. And then when we do that, then we can translate the whole story, culture, message, theology from that culture into our culture. Yeah. I really enjoyed um, Chris's point. This helped me a ton with him being able to pretty much say that that maybe evangelical culture throughout the the ages has prided itself on on taking out the ritual and taking out even like the imagery but all we've done is really just replaced it with new rituals and new imagery um and i i appreciated that because it really helped me put like words and categories to things that i've wrestled with for so long that i'm like yeah like these things that we do we don't always call them ritual, but that's exactly what they are. And by the way, that's not a bad thing at all. In fact, ritual can be really healthy and really good. Um, but having him kind of acknowledge that I, for me was very like helpful. Like, yeah, like what we do on Sunday morning, we've, we've just switched out the rituals. Um, whether, you know, instead of the Eucharist every Sunday, now it's the sermon or this time for worship. And also how it's more, you know, evangelical culture is more built upon the emotion, the feeling of uh, you're going to get like in a Sunday morning gathering and really historically in church culture in Protestant thought and, and, and in mainland thought that was never like, like the driving factor behind the Sunday morning. Um, so that, that stuck out to me a lot. And also Chris's Chris gave some great um, ways to talk about environmentalism. I thought his, his topic and his point that he made around, if every human consumed the way that Americans did, we would need three planets. That stuck out to me a lot because you sometimes you just don't realize the culture that you're in, how consumption-based it is. I mean, but Chris got me thinking because I realized that unintentionally, even in my own personal life, I like using disposable plates because I don't have to clean them afterwards. They're more convenient, but they also add to our landfills, and that adds to 
just our footprint of of pollution on the planet. And I appreciated that Chris like pointed out biblically how how we take care of the planet is a major concern of God. And as Christians, we owe it to ourselves to take that more seriously. Yeah. I think that whole conversation surrounding like the Christian relationship with science is really interesting. And I grew up similar. I like that you brought up the fact that you were homeschooled um, because I was also homeschooled. And through that process, you obviously get a lot of like uh, teaching about science through your school years that is done from a like intentionally Christian perspective. So I think that's a really interesting, I don't think very many people get that outside of the homeschool experience. Um, certainly in, in certain like private Christian schools and things like that. Right. Um, so it is interesting sort of the relationship that Christians have with science, because I don't think it's that we like that people just throw out science altogether. Um, I think there's sort of this prevailing attitude towards secular science that it is very secular and that it, it, it is defined by its secular secularism because of the way it addresses things like whether it's creation or, um, yeah, I mean, that's the big one, really. <laughs> um, so it's like if you're an evangelical Christian who holds a literal view of creation, which let's be honest, that's the majority of people. And, you know, despite, obviously, we've had other conversations about this, despite where you fall on that um, interpretation of Genesis 1, um, most evangelicals have a literal perspective. And when there's scientists from the secular view are going to say absolutely not evolution is the way that we got here it's almost like everything else coming out of that person's mouth is going to be void you know and maybe that's not a right way to to have it to to a right perspective to have about it um because i think you know while i am in college and i'm you know taking science classes and have to sit through a lot of you know, things that I might not agree with um, from like an evolutionary standpoint and maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. <laughs> um, that's part <laughs> of my, partly just my upbringing coming into it. Sure. But I, sure. Think there, I think there are other topics that it's like, yeah, we, we don't have to disagree with everything this scientist is saying just because they believe in evolution and you don't. Um, there are still pretty smart people that are doing, you know, some things and they know about things <laughs> it doesn't discount all of their knowledge and expertise um just because they're not a creationist however i will say i understand the other side of that and and the side that says you know if you are a diehard creationist you know six day literal creationist that you're going to have a hard time accepting information from someone who completely and I feel like it's not only just a disagreeing with that perspective, it's almost like a, a laughing at that perspective. Because I think that is sort of the attitude of a lot of, you know, the science community out there is like, oh, you know, intelligent design. <laughs> like, that's, well, that's yeah. a laughable thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was kind of my... That's the picture that's painted anyway, depending on the circle that you're in. Yeah. I, I would... 
And I'd say we all agree, we all agree about intelligent design, whether we take a, a literal six day creation story or not, you know, intelligent design is in there. <laughs> right. And yeah, you get the, you get on the one side, you get, um, you know, scientists that look down upon the literal creation days because, um, you know, whatever, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna state my opinion, but you're free to believe other things, um, <laughs> no. obviously. Um, but they'll look down on the literal six-day creationism because there's no scientific evidence to it. So you, you get boo, that. Boo! That, <laughs> liberal propaganda! Mute his mic. That like far left, whatever. And then I'm not speaking politically, but then you get the far right where you get like the, the Ken Hams of the world. Right. Like, well, if, if you're a secular scientist, your mind has been corrupted by sin and we can't believe any science. It's like, except yeah. for what comes out of answers in Genesis. Right. So you get both sides and it's like, guys, you clearly aren't, you, you both are in echo chambers. If mm -hmm. you actually go into the scientific realm, which I've been in all of my life, most people are somewhere in the middle and there's actually a ton of theists inside of the secular realm. And yes, there are some very ardent atheists. We all know the Richard Dawkins of the world. Like, yeah, we get that. But I would say the bulk of them are somewhere in the middle, kind of like the, um, his name is escaping me. He wrote the, the devil's delusion as a response to the God's delusion, the God delusion. Oh, the uh, uh, case of the creator guy? No, uh, no, he's a he's a secular Jew, but he wrote it as a as a secular Jew, hmm. kind of poking holes in the argument. Um, but I mean, I could look on my shelf; it's right there. <laughs> we don't have time for that. <laughs> but, well, seriously, um, we're like over an hour. <laughs> but this is a long um, response. Yeah, yeah. I'm, well, that's my fault now. too. Really quick, because we I we are a little. It's okay we're here, but just to button this thing up, there is a book I'm reading by John Walton, Dr. John Walton, called um, The Lost World of Genesis 1, which I recommend to any Christian. It is so – it's a little scholarly for me, at least. Maybe I'm just really dumb, but it's definitely like there's a lot of big words all the time. Um, but <laughs> it's late. I'm tired. But you know what I'm saying. He uses a lot of big words consistently but it's a great book it's really good it doesn't yeah okay whatever Rob. the point <laughs> is is that it's a really good book and it, there does seem to be among the people that we know and that we follow in the scholarly biblical world there seems to be a consensus that the genesis one account is not dealing with material creation that's almost like a thing that there's like very general consensus about it's more about function and order but that's for a different discussion so i hear what you're saying jordan i hear what you're saying rob any final thoughts on the chris hall interview before we let these guys go because they've been with us now for over an hour and i feel like a real buffoon let's be honest they're, not, they're saying, not with us anymore <laughs> after saying big words <laughs> have, uh, have you guys seen the good place on nbc yeah Speaking of things right on topic. <laughs> it is right on topic. Hey, they do come for the banter, so. Have you seen The Good Place? No. Yes. Jordan? Yes. So, 
it it i'd actually as you were talking with chris hall it it reminded me of the good place because they basically in that show they get to the afterlife and realize that it's based on an archaic point system that hasn't taken into consideration how complex the human experience has become and he's like you know it used to be you're buying tomatoes for your family and that's plus 50 points but now because that farmer used pesticides which also killed his neighbor's insects and those in those <laughs> roses that were also nearby were used to exploit children now it's negative 500 points and it was it just reminded me of that when he was talking especially, especially about um the environmental impact and just being a part of the culture we don't even realize all of the depths of what our culture is doing yes just by living not we're not actively protesting or doing anything we're just partaking right. in the system that's right it's become so overly complex yes he brought up that point that like you don't have to be dr evil to right. be part of the problem of pollution and that does just show the fishbowl that we're in and how we owe it to ourselves and owe it to being faithful christ followers to to realize and to think outside of our cultural boxes as much as possible only because we're generally we want to be as concerned with the things of god that god as god is concerned about them if that makes sense um and our culture can easily mask certain things or politicize certain things that that maybe our christian culture sides one way on when in reality God's actually way more concerned about the other side of that issue. So like the environment, for example. But anyway, um, this was a great response. I'm glad to have you guys on for this, even though I think we went way longer than we wanted to. If you guys, uh, okay. if you guys hung in with us this whole time, thank you so much. <laughs> get a like gold we, star. Yeah, you get a, yeah it was a plus 50 points, I guess, in the good place. Um, yeah. We do have an a Instagram at CTJ Podcast, so please give us a follow. If you like this episode, please give it a rating. And uh, on iTunes, it really helps us. And you can leave us a glowing review. That would be great. And uh, what else? Um, any comments, you can email us. Podcast at coffeetheologyandjesus.com. So thanks for tuning in, guys. And we will talk to you all next time. Thanks for checking out the Coffee Theology and Jesus podcast. You can always drop us a line on Facebook or through our email, podcast at coffeetheologyandjesus.com, as we love to hear from our listeners. Until next time, drink coffee, discuss theology, and love Jesus.